or a phone or something, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. If you're looking for a specific verse, we'll be starting in verse 14 and and working our way into chapter 5. But Hebrews 4, we've been in Hebrews now for several weeks. Going to spend the next uh, few months just working our way chapter by chapter through this book. Um, A relatively, um, one of those letters that we don't know a ton about, but we know it was written to a Back, Jewish background believing audience who are dealing with some persecution, some suffering. The water is getting hotter and they are trying to determine whether it, it makes sense to stay with Jesus or to go back into Judaism where their faith um, is, is legal, um, where there's going to be less um, stress, persecution, pain on them. And the author of Hebrews is writing saying, don't go. Like, remain with Jesus. Jesus is sufficient and he is enough and he is better. And so we've been walking through that over the first few chapters, seeing how Jesus is better than um, the prophets. He's better than the angels. Um, He's better than Moses. He's better than than Joshua, that the rest that he offers is better. And so we're going to continue that in chapter four. But before we begin reading, really the question I want to begin to kind of rattle in your head and stir in your heart is this, is how do we how do we approach God, right? Like, how do we get to him? Like, literally, how do we make things right with him? And so that's really where the author is going to want to begin to go in his, in his letter. This is a question that most people will ask at some point in their life. Whether or not they ever consider Jesus, they will say, look, if I believe that there is a higher power, if there is something that is divine, how is it that I would get to them? How would, how would I gain access. And then the second one would be, and how do I perceive them? And so for many of us, um, we start in one of two very divergent places when we think of God. Some of us um, kind of look around and say, we're all God's children. We all start there. And so God's, he's close and he's near and he's good. And there was never really an issue to begin with. And others are more in the camp of God is fearful. He is distant. He is far off. Um, if, if, he, if he's there, he's out to get us. Um, and so we, we start kind of in one of those two places, and, and yet Scripture is going to correct both of those. And so we're going to look at that in Hebrews, but really for us this morning is, as you think about how do we approach God, how do we get to him, would that question be kind of bouncing in your mind as we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 4? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For if we do not have a high priest, sorry, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, that's where we're going to stop this morning. So, what has developed throughout much of history um, is... In, in different corners of the world has have been many religious systems, all of which are trying, or philosophical systems, trying to say, hey, here's how we fix things that are broken. Here's how we get back to where we're supposed to be. And what Christianity has taught in, in, in the worldview that we would look at and see from the creator God is this, is that we were created to know God, to know him and to be with him. That is where Genesis starts. It's where Revelation ends that mankind, men and women, were created to know, to enjoy, to worship, and to be with God forever. And yet, death and sin have entered the world. Tragedy has entered the world because of our rebellion, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, and then subsequently ours. Right? That we have continued to have this huge chasm between us and God, which is why the question, how do we get back? How do we approach God? How would we come to Him? And so every religious system in the world, except for Christianity, will say, you know, you've got, to, you've got to get to him. Where Christianity tells us we can't, but he'll come for us. And what we'll find then is after Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from the presence of God. They were removed from the garden. And, and death enters the world. That sin has stained it. And where we have continued to go back in Hebrews is the author, because it's a Jewish background audience, continues to go back to the things they know well. And so what we would have seen is in the Exodus, as they were led out of Egypt, eventually they land in chapter 19 of Exodus at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the Lord descends, right? He's going to give the law to them. And he he has Moses come up, but he tells the rest of the people, don't touch the mountain or you will die. And they, the mountain quakes and it trembles and, and smoke and fire. And it's this awesome and fearful sight as people are around the mountain. And they're like, oh, we're not sure if we want this. Because God is fear, fearsome and he's awesome and he's mighty. And the law is given. And one of the aspects of the law is, look, I rescued you. Not because you had done something, but because I have done something. I've revealed myself to you. I'm calling you to be my people. And I've rescued you while you were still far from me. But now that I've made you mine, I'm going to give you a law. And if you'll follow that law, you're going to rightly reflect my character to the world. And you're going to know me and you're going to be near me. And part of the law was a priestly system. And the priestly system was to remind them that you need rescue. That you need redemption. Because they're going to continue to fail and to fall. That even in the receiving of the law, Moses has gone too long. And even though God has literally led them through the wilderness, they're like, hey, let's make a golden cow. We'll worship that because that's what led us out. Right? They, would, they were constantly going back to what they knew and what was familiar to them. Rather than who God is. And so as God is revealing himself to them, he sets up the priestly system. 
And Moses' brother Aaron, right, is, is going to be the first high priest. And his lineage is going to be those who will be, be the priestly people, who will be the mediator. And so what he's doing is he is taking us back to the, to the priestly system to say, look, Jesus is going to be better than this as well. But look first in verse 1 of chapter 5. So he says, For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So he says that, remember, as we set up the priestly system, their role was to be your representative. Right? That they were going to be a go-between between the people and God. That they would do the sacrifices and the offerings. They would go to God on behalf of everyone else. On behalf of everyone else, they were a representative. And so it meant they, they lived with the people. They knew the people, right? They weren't separated and, and removed from them. They had walked. They knew the same struggles, the same sin, the same miracles. They, they had seen God act in the same ways. And so they're now representing the people before God. The second thing is this is not just that they're a representative, but that they're appointed, right? They, they, they weren't elected. They were appointed to act on behalf of men. They were selected. That's why Aaron's family was selected to be the priestly line. We're going to get, come back to that one in just a second. They are also then to not just be a representative, but they are to be a mediator. Look at, the, at verse 1 again. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So one of the priest's jobs was just consistently offering all the litany of sacrifices there were. And so if you want to look into this, begin reading through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? It's all the stuff that you get to at the beginning of the year as you're trying to read the Bible through. And you're like, this stuff feels far removed from me. Because there's, when do we offer doves? And when do we offer a lamb? And when's, a, when's it a bull? And which one's okay? Because it was a system to say, like, you need God to rescue. You need the shedding of blood. Your sin separates you from him. And the priest's job were consistently offering sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. Their job was never complete because sin was never fully dealt with. So they are God's representative for, for man, man's representative to God, excuse me. They're appointed, they're not simply elected, right? They're a mediator. The fourth thing is this, look at verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness. It's a reminder that this was not some superhuman, like you're, you're the best of the best. But it was a man who was, had sin and had weakness. Who knew where people struggled, and where they suffered. And he was able to deal with them when they were ignorantly acting in sin or when they were walking astray. That they weren't to lord over them, but to, to call them back. The fifth thing is this. That he is a sinner himself. So Leviticus 16 will tell them that before the priest could offer sacrifice, especially on the Day of Atonement, that Aaron himself would have to go in and make an offering, a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner. And so he would offer a sacrifice and then he would walk into the outer courts of the tabernacle where they would worship and then into the holy place and then into a third, the holy of holies, where he would make on the mercy seat. A sacrifice on behalf of the people for the year. And then he would not linger. He would get out of there. Because they're not, they, they were worried about him dying. 
And so he would leave the Holy of Holies back into the holy place, back into the outer um, courtyard, and then out of the tabernacle completely. This kind of transient place of worship that they could take and pack up with them. Right? And he would go once a year on behalf of the people. And so they needed to be confident and hopeful that this man wasn't going to drop dead in front of the Holy of Holies. That he had prepared and, and had his sin forgiven and offered the appropriate sacrifices for himself because he's going in to ask for God to forgive the nation for another year because their sin was ever before them. And he says, right, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So in Numbers 16, we're reminded that you don't just get to say, hey, I'm a priest. Because we have Korah and his rebellion in Numbers 16. Where people looked at the priestly line of Aaron and they said, hey, you think you're better than us. Any of us could be priests. Why are you so special? And in the end, what happens is the earth swallows them up. Because God says, this is not a democracy. You don't get to pick and choose if you're going to be a priest. I have said what goes. Because I am God and you are not. So, you want to read number 16? It's a fascinating story of, of rebellion. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is this. is He's holding up this priestly system that they would have known well. And he's, he's making them consider it now because he's talking about Jesus. And so whether it was the tabernacle or subsequently the temple that was built, this, these places would have been a place of intense smell and of intense sights and sounds as animals are slaughtered, as people are constantly hustling and bustling for forgiveness. Even the reminder that there were the three doors for the priest to get through, through the gate and through into the holy place and into the most holy place. And the tabernacle would have been there and the temple was in the city. And so they would have constantly been reminded of this. God is here. He is present. And I'm separated from him. Right? Like there, there was, there's blood and there's smell and he's here and I can't quite get to him because someone has to do it on my behalf. And so the priestly system would have reminded them of this constantly. So... What the author of Hebrews wants to do now is he wants to kind of instill this idea in their head that would have been very familiar to them, is less so to us, and say this, so Jesus is better. Look now in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God, Jesus. Let us hold fast our confession. For if we do not have, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so that you could imagine the question that's emerged as they're beginning to consider, should we go back to Judaism? We're familiar with that. We're comfortable with that. It's legal. This pain and suffering and persecution would stop. And, and then you can begin to imagine they're beginning to look for, for reasons why they should do that. And it's like, Man, how are we saved anyway? Like, at least then we had a priest who did it for us. He would offer sacrifices. And, and you can begin to see, like, the groundswell of, like, yeah, how, how do we do this? How are we saved? How do we approach God if we don't have a high priest? And the author of Hebrews says, we do. We have a great high priest. 
And he says he has passed through the heavens. Here's why he says this. He's telling them, look, your high priest, he walked through the outer gates and into the holy place and into the holy of holies. And then he got out of there quickly, lest he drop dead. Our high priest passes through the heavens. He has access to God because he is the son of God. He is showing, you want, to, you want to talk about a priestly system, our priest is better. Because he doesn't have a rope tied to his ankle in case he drops dead so they can pull him out. Right? He is God himself and he passes through the heavens, not a man-made tabernacle or temple. He continues. He is the son of God. He has presence and access. And also that, that he is without sin. If we go... Back to chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, which we'll get to in just a second. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Right? That, that Jesus was tempted and yet was without Sin. And so one of the things we need to be reminded of this morning is your temptation in and of itself isn't sin. That if you feel like you are being tempted and tormented, it is not because you are, those things are not sin in and of themselves. That Jesus was tempted, he was tormented, he was pursued by the evil one, by the enemy, but he did not sin. And so the temptation is not sin, it's when temptation gives root to sin and then it begins to go into thought and action, and eventually into death. Jesus did not have to offer a sacrifice on his behalf prior to the cross. Because he did not have to, because he was perfect and holy and without sin, he was then able to offer himself as the sacrifice for us. Right? Like, it's why the priestly system is done with. It's because Jesus did what the sacrifices wouldn't do. He says, I am holy, right, righteous, perfect, without sin. And so I'm going to give myself as the last sacrifice that will appease and satisfy the wrath of God so that you can return to him, that you can know him and have access to him once again. And he was successful. That it was done. Listen, the priestly system in this whole idea here is going to be woven through the next several chapters, right? And so we're going to pick up on different elements and themes. If you feel like we're moving through this aspect quickly, we're going to have a lot of time for this to sink in. But one of the ways that we see his success is a small area, right? As we think about the the people of God grumbling in the wilderness, Jesus' ministry starts in the wilderness. And Satan pursues him and tempts him. And Jesus does not grumble. He trusts God. He actually was hungry when the people of God weren't. They were given manna and they're like, ah, can we have some meat? Are you going to give us something else? Jesus was hungry and yet he trusted the word of God. He trusted God the Father and he does not grumble in the wilderness. He is faithful in every regard without sin for all of his life. And so that he could be the sacrifice offered on our behalf. If you look at verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize 
with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I think sometimes we assume our suffering is because of of sin. And often it can be, right? That you are suffering because of your own sin, your own foolishness. But there are times in, in the Christian walk where you are suffering because God is doing something. Where, that's why he says we can count joy or trials with joy because he is shaping us into the image of Jesus. Because here's the thing. If we believe that suffering only comes because of sin, then Jesus wasn't sinless. Because Jesus is suffering. Right? Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered not due to his sin or his foolishness, Or his bad decisions. He suffered. Right? And it was not due to sin. And so as you contemplate a life of sin. Sorry. A life of suffering. It is not necessarily because you are wrapping your life in sin. That some suffering is is meant to simply shape us. More into the image of Jesus. When it says that he learns. Here's, here's what it's, he's talking. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The idea here is that, that his obedience was always faithful and it was always perfect, but it was untested. And as he walks through life, he shows that the Father is faithful and is present and is sufficient. It wasn't that he wasn't perfect and became perfect. It was that his obedience was not tested and then it was, and so it was proven to be genuine and faithful. And sufficient. So Jesus is better than the priestly system because he was perfect. He was successful. He was without sin. He is not just passing through the tabernacle and the temple, but through the heavens. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself. And then, because they might have said, well, wait a second, you said the high priest had to be appointed, he couldn't just pick himself. What about Jesus? And so that's where we pick up in verse 5. So Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He was appointed by him, him meaning God, who said, and this is Psalm 2, 7 that's quoted, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says in another place, which is Psalm 110, You are a priest forever. Right? He is setting him up and saying, You have been appointed for this task from before the foundation of the earth. In John 17, 4, we hear Jesus say this. I glorified you. He's praying here. So he's talking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, listen, that I had with you before the world existed. He is claiming, right, I am the Son of God. And in no way does that make me subordinate because I was with him and had the glory beforehand. I laid it aside momentarily to come to be the sacrifice that we needed. And God has appointed me for this task. And I have been successful in it. So Jesus is the better high priest. So for us this morning now, there are a couple benefits that I want us to look at. The first is this, is that he understands we look back at chapter 4 again, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest 
who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's the thing. Right, they, you would have looked at a, a, a man who was a high priest and said, man, he gets it. He knows how hard this is. And if, if God on high all of a sudden just says, okay, here's what you do. Come back to me. Get it done. Work hard. We'd be like, God doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how hard this is, how much we struggle, how hard temptation is. So God steps into flesh, right, to be tempted and tried in every way that we are yet without sin, so that when we cry out to him in prayer, we trust that he doesn't think we're crazy, that he understands how difficult it is, that he understands. And so these, I'm going to run through this list. If you, if you want it afterwards, I can give you to it. This a list that I partially compiled and, and I found a portion of it as well. I just want you to consider some of the aspects of his life where sin could have been a possibility and yet he didn't. He was homeless, right? He had nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8. His family often thought he was crazy. We see this in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3. His best friends at the end of his life turned their back on him. One of his closest, Judas, sold him to be killed for very little money. He was tempted literally in the wilderness by the devil face to face. He was murdered. He endured gossip and slander. He endured suffering for righteousness' sake. He was shamed publicly. He had periods of hunger. He received criticism for his ministry. His message was mocked and rejected. His disciples often did not get it. Often did not understand. He cried out in Matthew 27, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he tastes the wrath of God that was meant for us. And Jesus stands in the gap for us. Right? He, he could have lied to save his life. Right? Um, he could have coveted the things that, that the rich around him had because he was the one who had left behind all the glory of heaven. Right? He could have dishonored his parents when he was 12 and left behind because they were, they were too strict and maybe didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, he could have taken revenge when he was wrongly accused or to lashed out in anger. He could have lusted when Mary cleaned her tears in the oil with her hair on his feet. He could have pouted with self-pity when the disciples continued to fall asleep in the garden right before he's going to face death. Right? He could have gloated over his accusers. He could have pulled himself off the cross when mocked and humiliated and said, you want to see something? See this. Right? When we are mocked and humiliated, what our response is, we want to say, oh yeah, look at me now. And yet Jesus doesn't sin in any of this. For 30 plus years, he is faithful to trust the, the plan set before him, for, before the foundation of the earth, to trust what God is doing, that he is going to rescue us all. And so the scene in Exodus 19 is the glory of God is falling, as the law is being given, the fear of the people is right because we are far from God. In the sight and the smell of sacrifices and the reminder that God is present and yet he is separated from us is right because our sin has created a gap in our rebellion towards him. And yet Jesus then comes and stands as the better high priest satisfying the wrath of God by being the perfect life. The obedient death 
and then beating sin and Satan and death and living again in the resurrection. Listen to how Isaiah talks about the one who would come. Chapter 53. He was despised, in verse 3, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. But with his wounds we are healed. Right? We have a wounded healer. And so some of you are going, I'm acquainted with grief. I am, I am bogged down with this. And Jesus says, yeah, me too. Right? And so when, we, when he says, I get it, I understand, you can have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He was not too removed to weep. Right? And so as you weep and say, God, you don't get it. He says, yes, I do. I was betrayed. I was mocked. I was humiliated. I was left. I was falsely accused. All of these things that he gets it. And so our weakness is okay. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that in our weakness, right, his strength is perfected. That he says, I I came for the sick, not for the well. And so there is grace and mercy and sympathy for the needy. But church, hear this. There is not those things available for the self-sufficient. Because the self-sufficient are saying, I don't need you, God. I've got this on my own. And so if that is where you die in your self-sufficiency, or if Jesus returns in your self-sufficiency, right? That's why the author of Hebrews has continued to say, do it today. Do it today. Because in your self-sufficiency, you will have said, I didn't need you. And you will experience God as in Exodus 19. You will experience God as 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 we saw last year as we walked through, or earlier this year in Amos, with fear and trembling and judgment and wrath as he roars from on heaven, that is not what I intended. I gave you everything you needed. I came for you when you were weak and broken. I have paid the price for you. And it is available to you. And so it doesn't matter what your sin looks like. If you're willing to say, God, I need it. I need your rescue because look at what I've done with my life. It's available. It's yours. And he will gladly pour it out in abundance upon you. But if we stand there in arrogance and pride and say, no, I'm good. There's none available. Until we are broken and repentant. Listen. Here's the thing. Who do you go to? Right? When, when your marriage is struggling. When, you're, when, when you cannot fathom how you're going to survive with your kids for another day. Right? When you're nearing bankruptcy. Or maybe you've come into money. Like whether it's good or bad. Who do you, who do you go to? It's someone who understands. Right? It's someone who's been in that situation. Someone you trust. Someone you respect. Who gets it. Someone who's willing to listen to you and, and advise you. What Jesus is saying to us is one of the benefits of me having come is I can be that person. I am that person. You can come to me because I understand the trials, the struggles, and the difficulty of life, of sin, of temptation. Because I've, I've, I've been there, yet without sin. I didn't, I didn't fall into it. He was perfect. Perfect. 
And the second thing is not just that we have a God who understands, but that we also have a God who has given us access. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And he kind of brackets it if we look over to verse 9 in chapter 5. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right, so what he's saying is this, is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that he is the source of salvation. If we want to get back to the Father, if we want to be where we were created for and where we belong, it's through Jesus, right? And, and Romans 1, 5 tells us that what faith is, faith in Jesus, is the work of obedience, Right? So our faith is our obedience. When he says, for those who obey, it's not that we earn our salvation, it's that we trust that he has done it, that we obey him by believing him, that we trust him. And because Jesus has given us salvation, then you get the right to be called a child of God, that you get to call God Father. Access has been granted. What you were created for and longing for and could not fix has been opened wide for you. Right, that, that now the tabernacle and the temple are ruled null and void. Exodus 19 in Mount Sinai is no longer fearful for, for us because we know him as Father and he has rescued us because he has tasted the wrath that we deserved. We can approach without fear. I, I, you know, right, you think about a celebrity or someone famous that you would love to know or to see or to interact with, right? And you're like, like I see him, like, do I go to him or not? And then someone who knows them just like, I know him. And they, they run up to him. Maybe, maybe a lesser example would be this. I'm not sure what I have done to earn this reputation. But often I'll invite someone to lunch. And like, they'll be super nervous. And they're like, like they're, they're twitting. I'm like, well, you okay? And they're like, it's like I've been called in the principal's office. And I'm like, man, I just wanted to have lunch. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. Right? And I'm like, what are you feeling so nervous about here? Right? Like, do you need to tell me something? Right? But, but often people are like, or they'll text back and go, what did I do? Or why? Like there's just this assumption of like fear, right? But here's the thing. This week, if I ask Carson or Jude, hey, you want to go to have lunch? They're going to be like, yes. And I've actually disciplined them, right? <laughs> like I actually have disciplined them. And yet they would, with excitement, say, yes, I want to go have lunch, right? Because they know me and, and, and they, they trust me. Right? And yet sometimes we look at God and we're like, I'm not sure if I have access or not. I'm not sure if I'm really allowed in. And what, what Hebrews is reminding us and telling us, us is this. Let us with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And so he is painting this picture of God sitting on his throne. And where once the mountain was smoldering and smoking and we were terrified and dropping back. He says, you walk confidently in there. But not because of you. Because of Jesus. Because he's done what you could not do. And it's not just a throne where he's looking to smite you or to hurt you or to, to shake his head disapprovingly of you. But it's a throne of grace where you get what you don't deserve. Because Jesus paid for you. Right? That he has brought you in and says, that's your dad. Go in. Talk to him. Ask him. Church, sometimes we get so wrapped up in our prayers being like perfect or we won't pray out loud or we don't want to pray at all because we're afraid we're going to mess it up. Have you ever been around a little kid? They often say dumb stuff 
right? Or they mix words up or they use the wrong word, right? And you don't, you don't like smack them around and say, get it together. Ask me the right way. So Jude sometimes will come over to me and goes, can I go with you? Well, Cam isn't really a word here. Like, I don't like sit there and like, like, all right, now ask me appropriately. I'm just like, I know exactly what you meant, son. And yeah, you can. Your prayers do not have to be perfect to be heard by God who loves you and wants to respond to them. And so if you want to think about your prayers as being a toddler's cry to their parent, then do it. Because he knows your heart and the cry of your heart. He tasted the cup of wrath so that you wouldn't have to. He has opened up the door and said, come to the Father. Approach without fear. And ask. And listen to what he says. That we may receive mercy. Right? And find grace to help in time of need. And there are no qualifications here. Right? Marriage is in trouble. Ask God. Right? Right? Your, your body is hurting. Ask God. You are crying out because you're suffering. You go to the one, right, who is going to give you mercy and help in the time of need. Carmen and I had some friends who, whenever their kids would start to whine, they just had this little family mantra, what do you deserve, is what the dad would say from the front seat. What do you deserve? And they had trained the kids from they were really little to say, Death! Right? What do we get? Everything. Right? The throne room of grace is this. What do you deserve? Nothing. You deserve nothing other than to be separated from God forever. Right? So that's what he's trying to teach his kids from an early age. Quit whining. Because you don't deserve anything. But you get it all. Because the God is faithful to be our good Father. And He's going to pour out grace and mercy. He knows your needs and wants you to come and ask Him. So that He can love and minister and interact with you. You get grace. You get the response that you don't deserve. Because Jesus has paid for it. And now has put His perfection upon you. It's not just an exchange where He takes our sin. We get His perfection. And it's why we can walk in because, right, Jesus passed through the heavens. He's like, you get to walk in. There's no door separating you anymore. There's no temple or tabernacle. You walk into the throne room because you belong and you can come in confidently. So here's where we're going to end. In John 6, verse 29, we hear this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. So if if we think back to where it says we're supposed to obey, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so if you want to get the obedience that gains salvation, it's not the things that you go and do, it's that you believe in Jesus. And in believing him, you are doing the work that God has sent you to do, which is believing in the one who has rescued you. That is, and so the author of Hebrews would simply add to John 6.29, today. <laughs> Do it today. And then church, that we would be reminded of this. That we are then a kingdom of priests. It's what he's called the people of Israel to do and it's what he's called the church to do. Is there's no longer a go-between, a mediator as a man for us because Jesus has already done that. That's why the priestly system is done, the sacrificial system is done. 
that we get to be a people who know God ourselves. And so we get to point him to others and say, know him. He's so good. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. He'll, he'll rescue you. He'll redeem you. He'll be the place where you were meant to be, to belong. Church, one of the things that's happening on Sunday mornings as we gather, or as you gather in gospel communities, is this, is that you are doing the work of a priest with one another. Because you're holding up Jesus and saying, I know we're prone to forget. I know our hearts are prone to wander. I know we're prone to grumble. But be reminded of who he is. Be reminded of his truth. Look at him. Trust him. Encourage one another. See God. So the author of Hebrews is saying, together, priest, let's get to the place we belong. Right now we've tasted it in part. We've, we've acquired it in full. And one day we will see it, right, in all reality. And so, where we began was this. That the people that he's writing this letter to were being tempted to walk away from Jesus because things were hard. And he's just told them Jesus did not back out when things got hard. That he stayed in it and and earned salvation and access and understanding for us. So he's saying, press on. Don't walk away. Jesus has been our example. Continue to follow him despite hardship. He is worth it. It is is worth it. And if you walk away now, you're going to miss it all. So church, the circumstances of your life are not always in your hands. And they're not always due to the sin in your life. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am sufficient. And you cry out in prayer every time you need to, whether the words are good or not. Because you have access. And I'm taking you back to the Father where you belong. Where every tear will be wiped away for all time. And you will be in the place where you are safe and secure. And in the meantime, here's the church. And we're going to consistently lift each other's chins to be reminded of the glory and the goodness of God. And play the role of priest for one another. Because our high priest has accomplished what we couldn't do, but has been given to us freely. So this morning... Right? There's going to be some men and women in the back of the room would love to pray with you, would, would love to, to enter the throne room of grace with you or on your behalf. The band is going to come and, and help us lift our chins to look at God, not our circumstances, to be reminded that he understands. And we're going to sing to a king who is on his throne listening and hearing. He is not far off. These, these words are not just for us. Or for the walls here. But they are being received by a living king. And would we be a people who would walk linked arm in arm. Pursuing our king. Until the day we arrive in glory. Let's pray. Father we want to be a people. As you have given us in Hebrews 4.14. That since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, would we be a church as, as Redeemer who holds fast, clings to that confession. That you have done what we could not do. You've given us what we do not deserve. And you get the struggle of life. Lord, you have done it all. Would we not be so self-sufficient 
arrogant and boastful to think that we can figure this out on our own, but would we trust what you have done to rescue us, to redeem us? And would you receive the glory and the honor and the praise that you richly deserve? Would we be a people of humility because there is no room for arrogance? And would you be glorified with our words, with our songs, God, in the very lives that we live? In Jesus' name, amen.